James says, life is like a vapor. It's like a mist. We just read that. Point number one on your outline is earthly life is temporary. Earthly life is temporary. I, um, years ago, walked into a, into a uh, nursing center. There was an older man there who was in his 80s. That doesn't seem quite as old to me now as, as it did then. By the way, did we want to take the offering now or we want to take it later? When do, did I forget to do that? See, that, this is going to be a very interesting evening, and we're just five minutes in. So we're, these folks are going to receive the offering, and I'm going to keep talking, okay? I haven't done this for a while. I'll never forget the second time I did this on a Wednesday night, and I forgot the offering, and Pastor Rob was in charge, and I'm standing here talking, he walks up and he pulls my pant leg and says, you need to take the offering. So at least nobody's pulling my pant leg tonight. I walked into this nursing center, and there was an older gentleman there. I said, Elmer, have you lived here in this town all your life? And he grinned at me and said, not yet. <laughs> my father-in-law, when, when I went with Ruth to do a church plant back in the early 60s, we left Modesto, California, and I said, so what should I be thinking? And he said, Dick, um, you're going to be turn around. You're going to turn around a couple of times and be an old man with white hair. And he said, "So whatever you're going to do for God, you better get with the program." We turn around a couple of times, and we're old people with white hair. I mean, it seems like yesterday. An you know, older guy said, "It just seems like yesterday. I was 16, and really, uh, well, life is a vapor, and it can go like that." So. However good my life is, however bad my life is, that's how it is. And it only takes one thing to make you aware of that. If you've ever been in a hospital room with someone who's dying, and they take a breath, and it doesn't seem like they exhale, or they just exhale, and that's it. Instantly, you know something has changed. Instantly, you know they moved from here to here. It's a vapor. It does that. On the morning of May 22nd, Ruth and I were in Estes Park, and I gave you a little five-minute synopsis several months ago. Ruth and I were in Estes Park with some friends. <coughs> Excuse me. And she had been saying something, sat back beside me, gasped and slumped to the side. And when that happened, I grabbed her and turned her toward me. And when her face swung toward me, I was looking into the face of death. Her eyes were open. Her pupils were dilated. And she was gone. It's what doctors call sudden cardiac death. Your heart has three parts. It's got plumbing, it's got, which is the arteries. It's got the mechanics, which are the muscles and the valves. And then it has the electrical system. When the electrical system shorts out, instantly your heart stops pumping. It fibrillates. It quivers like this. The bottom part of it ceases to pump blood. And the cortex of the brain, which takes a lot of, it's only 2% of the body, but takes 20% of the blood. It instantly loses blood. And within just a few minutes, brain cells start dying and they don't regenerate. So it's critical to get blood back to that heart. I shouted, if I remember, you know, it's all a blur, but I shouted, Ruthie, don't leave me. Because this is the closest relationship. I, it was reflex. It wasn't even like I thought about it. It's Ruthie, don't leave me. Started weeping and praying. The people in the room, there were nine others, started praying, calling 911. And I have this, this mishmash of senses about that time. We were able to, to
to put her on the floor like the 911 operator said, but she was gone. There was no breathing. There was no pulse, no heartbeat. And, and I could hear sirens coming. And in a few moments, I don't know if it was three minutes or five minutes, a young rookie cop ran into the room, went down on his knees and started doing chest compressions. And the, and the first thing some guys close to it heard were the popping of ribs when that happened. And, and I could hear one, two, three, four, five. A few minutes later, EMS people got there, and I won't go into all the details, but they got around, cut her clothes off, put the, put the paddles on, and all this time you're hearing one, two, three, four, five, and people are praying in the room. And I heard somebody say, clear. And I watched her feet. All I could see were her bare feet. I watched her ankles come off the floor, heels, and go back down. Nothing. One, two, three, four, five. They said, clear. Did it again. Nothing. One, two, three, four, five. They did it again. And I heard somebody say, we have a pulse. The next minutes or time frame is just sort of all garbled. But every... Miracle, what we call miracles, point two. What we call miracles often have a human component. When those guys let their friend down through the roof, they cleared the roof. They dug the dirt off the roof, flat Palestinian home. You can see shafts of light coming down with dust coming down and clods of dirt and all the people getting dirt on their heads. And, <laughs> and here comes this guy. There's a shaft of light, then it's blocked by his body coming down. Every miracle, almost all miracles, have human components to them. Whether it's Jesus putting mud in a guy's eye in John 9 and say, go wash it out. Or in the Old Testament saying to Naaman who has leprosy, go dip in the river seven times. Or Elijah saying to the widow of Zarephath in the Old Testament, give me the oil, make me a little cake out of the last meal you have. We'll worry about the drought and the starvation later. Whatever it is, there, there are human pieces to miracles that go on. And, and I ask you tonight, have you ever thought about yourself in this way? Perhaps I might be an answer to somebody's prayer. A young rookie cop in Estes Park was the hand of God. EMS people who train every Friday to do what they did that Wednesday morning were the hands of God. When we, when we got her in the helicopter and flew down here to to Estes. I didn't get in the helicopter. We drove. It's a 13-minute ride. Very expensive. I just like to say that. And uh, she flew on this helicopter. When I, when I saw, when, I, when, I, when she woke up later, I said, Ruth, I have something, because Ruth doesn't like to fly. I said, Ruth, I just got something to tell you. You flew on a helicopter. And uh, anyway, the, the, but, the, but the point is, the point is that when you, when you think about it, all the people who are involved in something positive happening where somebody is healed, whether it's a miraculous healing or whether it's through the healing of doctor's hands, whatever it is, there are human components to miracles. Even if it's the kind of miracle where, where the woman touches the hem of the garment. There are no doctors involved. There's nothing. But she, she had to do something. That's how it is. When we got to the hospital here at MCR, they said, here's the deal. We don't know how much brain damage there is. We don't know any of that. All we know is that there are three possible outcomes. We're going to take her into a hypothermic state, take her body down to 92 degrees, and then after 24 hours, we're going to warm her up half a degree at a time. 
Nothing can happen before that time period is done. And even then, don't expect very much. Over the next hours or days or weeks, she might wake up, she might wake up brain damaged, or she may never wake up. And we lived with that for 40 hours. I had never had that kind of experience before. Never had that kind of intensity before. And uh, people gathered around. Friends were praying around the world. It went on the internet. It went, I mean, it just, and our eldest daughter put a candle on her Facebook profile, and all of a sudden, hundreds of people across the country put candles on their Facebook profile. And some weeks ago, Ruth and I were back in Virginia, and we met with one of our daughter's college classmates who lives in Virginia Beach. And she, uh, she did the candle thing, and, but she stayed up for two nights and prayed all night. And in the middle of the second night, she said, phooey on the candle. And she went out on the beach and built a bonfire and posted that on Facebook. And, uh, there are human components to miracles, I believe. In the middle of the first or second night, I don't know which it was because it's all one to me, there was a doctor, a cardiac surgeon, who lives down in Boulder but works here at MCR. Harvard and Columbia Medical School trained, very smart. He walked in, I'd only met him once, he wasn't Ruth's doctor. And he just said, Dick, I, I have a sense this is gonna be okay. I'd like to pray. I said, good. I mean, I'm not used to that. You know, I mean, with doctors in hospitals and ICU, I, you know, chaplains and stuff, but not. And, and he put his hand on Ruth. And in a loud voice, he started to pray, Lord God Almighty, I pray that you will heal Ruth from the top of her head to the toes of her feet. It was a God moment in that time. I'll make the story short. We had friends who were here, those people that were up on the mountain with us and others from here. I was trying to sleep at the head of the bed. It was in the warming up period. They said, don't expect anything until 6 in the morning. If, if anything at all, don't expect anything. And at 2.10 in the morning, the lady who was staying up with her shook her, shook me and woke me up and said, Ruthie's waking up. I got up, walked over, and the, they have a series of tests they give you to see brain function, questions or commands. The male nurse looked at her and said, Ruth, open your eyes. And Ruth opened her eyes. She's heavily sedated. Said, look at me. He focused on her. She focused on him. Said, squeeze my hand. Squeezed hand. Said, wiggle your toes. Both sets of toes wiggled. Said, wiggle the toes on your right foot. Said, shrug your shoulders. Shrug your shoulders. Said, give me a smile. She's intubated, you know, so it's a long look. And then he said, give me two thumbs up. She went. When she did that, I lost it. I'm thanking Jesus. I'm bawling. I'm, you know, I'm, this, this is going to work. And she was, she was back. She was coming back. In that process of coming back, the thing that kept coming to me was God does miracles and there are human components to miracles. And so tonight, you know, the, the odds, if you will, are 88% of the people who suffer this are home alone, and you come home, and they're gone. Of the other 12%, only 1 in 20 walks out of the hospital. And less than that walk out without deficit. And tonight, Ruth sits here, and she's very smart, and she's now telling me one more time what to do. 
her energy isn't quite back yet, so she can't make me do it. But it's, you know, it's just right there. And this is a testimony to the grace of God in this situation. Her sense of humor, of course, was always there. She has a sense of humor, especially directed toward me, that can go like that. And people love that when she takes one of those. But I just tell this story. In those first few days, the eye-hand coordination wasn't great, and she picked up a piece of bread. And we're all sitting around like with a baby, how you watch a baby's every move. You turn off the TV, and you say, oh, look, he moved his toes. You know, we're, we're doing that. We're all sitting around. And she just she has some soup and some bread, and she takes a roll and misses. She hits her chin, drops it in her lap. And uh, she said, oh, you old fumble fingers. And then she looked at, up us and looked up at us and grinned and said, but I did just come back from the dead. So I, you know, for us, for me, for all of us, it was a death and resurrection. It was, it was how it is. The question is, what about her sister, who 16 years before, at the age of 42, had had that same thing and hadn't survived? Or what about when, when the outcome is not like that? What do we do about God at work then? Because it, we need to rejoice. We need to give testimony when, in fact, these kinds of things happen. That's why I talk about it. This is less about Ruth than it is about a God who comes into a situation, we believe, in this particular time. The, those medical people were using miracle language. But what about situations that don't exactly, where's God there? How does that work? Back in 1975, there was a young man who was working with Campus Life Youth for Christ. And six or seven years ago, before I came here as part of the team, I told this story. I told it in greater length. I'm not going to tell it in, in that length tonight. But this was a young man who was sharp, that had um, tremendously uh, engaging qualities. And he would recruit University of Illinois students, that's where we lived at the time, to work on high school campuses with Bible clubs. He worked with a group called Campus Life Youth for Christ. It's like Young Life. And he had 70 University of Illinois students working on high school campuses around East Central Illinois. And we were going to invite him to come and be campus pastor at the university from our congregation. Had a lunch appointment set in March of that year, 1975. And at 10.30, I got a call saying they've rushed Denny to the hospital. And Denny, age 28, had awakened that morning, said, I feel a little funny, took a shower. He said, my arm's a little tingly. He went in, sat down, had his little five-year-old daughter, had two daughters, five-year-old daughter sitting on his lap. And he called to his wife, and she stuck her head around the corner of the door just in time to watch him fall on the floor in convulsions. And he had had exactly what Ruth had five months ago. Denny had a rhythmic heart failure at the age of 28. It took them 10 minutes to get him to the hospital. They didn't have the mechanisms they have now. And by the time they got him there, he was cyanotic. He was blue. I was standing outside the emergency room doors. They cut his shirt off, and his wife was standing there and all of that. And they would come out and say, we can't get his heart going. Then we got it. And finally, they came out and said, we have a ragged rhythm, but there's less than 10% chance that he'll make it. There were high schoolers all over the hospital that night. They were in the chairs. They were sleeping under the chairs. And the nurses were saying, who is this guy? And he said, well, he's a guy who loved high schoolers. Long story short, then he was in a coma for 30 days. And the doctor said, don't expect anything. It'll be a vegetative state. But we prayed. We did everything we knew. We anointed with oil. We fasted. We did all the things biblically that we thought we, 
would work, and I put that in quotes, but just the things that are in the, in the scriptures. I went and I stood by his bed one day, about two or three weeks into this, and some of you had this experience with people in auto accidents or with strokes, and they were vital and they were sharp and they were quick, and now you can't find them. And I'm standing by his bed, and here's this guy who was urbane and witty and engaging and now he's strapped into a bed in restraints he got all these tubes and you it's like shouting into a cave and getting nothing back and um i stood by his bed that day and i said god i believe that the spirit of man the breath of lives lives in the cortex of the human brain and when the spirit is damaged or excuse me when when the cortex is damaged that person is no longer human that's what I said to God. And I can almost hear his response. Oh, boy. Both again. You know. Sometimes we just say dumb stuff. And he's the God who loves us so much that he just lets it go on by. He says, well, you know, both have sort of a spirit of dumbness on them today. We'll just let him say that stuff. But I walked into the elevator that day and turned. There was nobody, and I just smashed my fist into the elevator wall and asked the classic question, Why? Here's a 20-year guy with a wife and two little girls. And went, why? He's got this ministry. And he's got, why? C.S. Lewis says, sometimes we ask God nonsense questions. We ask him questions like, is, is round blue or is yellow square? And that day in the elevator, I felt like God said, both I can answer any question you ask me. I'm God. But maybe your frame of reference is not large enough to accommodate the answer. Like if our son, when he was small, if he was six years old and came up to me and said, Daddy, what is nuclear, nuclear physics? Well, he's six years old. Six-year-olds can't, they don't know about nuclear physics. But with six-year-olds, you work with concrete examples because it's a concrete world. And so I took an apple and an orange, and I'm saying, let me explain these things called atoms to you. You can't see these, but an atom has this core to it. It's got protons and neutrons, and then the orange, it's electrons, and they're whipping around. Your body has made a gazillions of these things. And Chris is saying, oh, wow, I've got apples and oranges all over my body. Because I, I, I'm telling him the truth, but his frame of reference is not large enough to understand it. And in those situations, I think God says to us, okay, folks, we're going to have to get down to the nubs. What you're going to have to do here is trust me. And I'm going, oh, no, we're down to trust. Actually, we're up to trust. That's how that works. 30 days into this thing, I pull into the driveway and, of our house, and Ruth comes running out of the house. And it was back in the day where, where ladies wore the big curlers. Ladies, remember the big you know and and we had an agreement she would never come outside like that and she came running running out of the house she had her because it scares all the dogs in the neighborhood and uh, and she pounded on the window and said the the hospital called and denny woke up and i'm going okay all right and, and i raced to the hospital and i ran up to the third floor and they said did denny wake up they said he did i said and he spoke he spoke he said what did he say and they said well you always talk to somebody in a coma and when he took the orange juice tube out of his nose, we said, do you want more now, Denny? And he very softly said, later. And I'm thinking, he's coming back. And I, and I went into the room, and he was just like he was before, and I tried to get him to talk and nothing. And, and finally, I was so frustrated, I walked over and closed the heavy hospital door. 
And I, well, he was a big boy. He was 230. And I walked over and I grabbed him with all the tubes and things. And I just shook him. And I said, McNabb, this is Foth. Can you hear me? And he took a real deep breath and he said, yep. And I went nuts, man. I'm saying, he's coming back. It was, you know. Well, he didn't come back that way. And I need to tell you that now, 40 years later, Denny is still in a facility in Racine, Wisconsin. It didn't turn out this way. It's a different way. But in that journey, in that process, several things came to the forefront. He didn't, he didn't have any memory. It was like Teflon. He just slid off whatever you said. And so you, you'd walk in and say, hi, what's your name? I'd say, Dick, I'm your good friend. He said, oh, what's your name? I'd say, I'm, I'm Dick Foth. He said, ah, have I asked you your name? And you just want to punch him. You know, and, and, I'm, and it, nothing stuck, right? He didn't know his hands were connected to his body. Babies don't know hands are connected to their body until they get teeth. And then they bite him and they say, oh, okay, let's not do that. And, you know, you learn that way. But if I gave him my glasses, he'd stick them in his mouth just like a baby. What happens with the family or those close when that happens is that we start saying, whoever that is, that's not John. That's not the person I knew. And we start pulling back. Oftentimes we start pulling away because I don't know where John went, but that's not who it is. That person is not who it is. One day I walked in and they were trying to teach him to talk. And he could speak, but it didn't make much sense. And they were holding up pictures, and they held up a picture of a cup. They said, what is this, Denny? He said, I don't know. He said, it's a cup. He said, oh, what's a cup? He said, you drink out of it. He said, what's drink? He said, well, and as I'm standing there, I have this thought. Because this, the scripture says in First Peter, and I'm not going to read the text, but First Peter in Hebrew says it this way, that the word of the Lord endures forever. That this, maybe not in written form, but this endures forever. And that the word is like a sword, Hebrews 4.12 says, that plunges down dividing joints and marrow, or literally plunging through intellect, emotion, into spirit. That this nurtures spirit. That's what scripture would suggest or say in my way of understanding. And I just had this thought. that I just asked him this question. And I said, Denny, do you remember this? He doesn't remember his wife. He doesn't remember his kids. I said, Denny, do you remember this? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And I stopped. John three sixteen. And Denny got this faraway look in his eyes and said that if I believe in him, I won't die anymore. I said, Denny, do you, do you remember this? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he picked it up on key and sang it all the way to the end. And the nurse about passed out. And I started bawling. <laughs> and Denny never came all the way back. But at that moment, I felt like the Lord said, Both, here's the deal. Spirit is deeper than the cortex of the brain. And when the cortex doesn't work right, my word and the songs still connect. I told this story at um, Gordon Conwell Seminary Presbyterian School in Boston, Massachusetts some years ago. And a young man came running up to me afterwards. And he said, I got to tell you this. I got to say, he said, I'm an intern in this church. And they give me the grunge jobs because I'm an intern. And this week, they sent me to the nursing home to see Mrs. Fredericks, who's 93 and lays there and babbles all day long. 
And I tried to get her to talk to me, but she was just incoherent. She was out of it. And finally I said, Mrs. Fredericks, I'm going to leave now. Whereupon she turned away from facing the wall, looked at me, and said, young man, before you leave, I'd like to say something. And she started quoting a scripture. And she said, he said, it was a psalm. And I grabbed my Bible, and she was quoting the 119th psalm. Now, the 119th psalm is the longest psalm. It doesn't just like have 25 verses, like 176 or something. I mean, it's, and he said she's quoting it word for word, King James, word for word. And she gets to the end, and she says, I'd like to pray. And she prayed this powerful prayer, said amen, turned over and started babbling again. What is that? I would submit to you that spirit is deeper than the cortex of the brain. And this nurtures spirit. And when you teach your three-year-old or your four-year-old some scriptures, those don't go away. You say, yeah, but they don't understand the theology of that. Well, we don't understand the theology half the time. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that there's something about the truth of God that touches spirit at a deeper place. I said to God, what about Denny's ministry? What about this impact he had on kids? He was in a nursing center for several years. And one day, the authorities called from Champaign-Urbana said, there's a tornado on the ground heading straight toward the nursing facility. Get the people into the hallways. It had just taken out 13 houses in the town just to the west of there. It was three-quarters of a mile across on the ground, and it came up, and they're herding these people into the wall. These are, these are older folks who have Alzheimer's and 16-year-olds who went through windshields of automobiles, and they're herding them into the halls, and it's just pandemonium. And in the middle of that, Denny stood up and said, what we need to do here is pray. And then they said, okay, Denny, go ahead, go ahead, pray. And Denny just said, Jesus, dear Jesus, you know we, we can't take care of ourselves. Please don't let this tornado hit us. And, a, and that tornado came up within a quarter of a mile of the nursing home, lifted, went across the nursing home, across the highway, and sat down in a cornfield and kept going. And there were three nurses in church the next Sunday morning. You say, but it doesn't always happen. No, nothing always happens. The only always is God himself. But the fact is, even in the most debilitating situations, the character of God is at work. And that when we understand that, when you go and sit with somebody in a nursing home who is, quote, out of it, and you read them scripture, or you sing them songs of the church, I would, I would make a case, if you will, that God is at work in that spirit. You can walk into a nursing center where they have people who used to be brilliant, and now they're strapped into chairs, drooling on themselves. They've had strokes and all this kind of thing. And, and somebody goes and sits down and starts playing that song that we sang tonight, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. And from the corners of that room, people start singing. Why? Because spirit is deeper than the cortex of the brain. God is at work in healing and wholeness. He's also at work when it doesn't work the way we want it to. And at the very best, life is temporary. At the very best, it's a vapor. A few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, we're sitting in the front room after this. And Ruth looks at me and says, now I get to die twice, like Lazarus. Lazarus died again because life is temporary. It's a vapor. It's a mist. 
I just wanted tonight to say to you, God works in lots of different ways. And I don't know the answers to the imponderables. I don't know why this happens and that doesn't happen. Or why it happens here and it doesn't happen there. What I do know is that when we trust him, the peace that is eternal keeps going. Jesus looks at the paralyzed man on the floor and says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's the eternal peace. That never, never changes. We don't come back around to that. And then he says, rise, take up your mat and walk. That person died. But that spirit that had been forgiven, the core of that person whose sins had been forgiven, that keeps going. They get a new one of these. This is temporary. That's eternal. That's the, mer that's the greatest miracle of all that a person's life would be transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that they would have community in ways they never dreamed they could, that even when biological connections don't work, spirit connections work. That's the greatest miracle of all. These other miracles, at best, are temporary, but he's the God who does them both. And I just, I just wanted to say that. When, when uh, Brent said, why don't you speak tonight? This was the first thing that came to mind because for six months I've been grappling with this. You ask yourself, why didn't this happen or why did that happen? Or I don't know the why. I just know the what in this particular situation. And I know that the God who is in both places still is at work. That's how it is. I'd like you to stand with me tonight as we close, if you would. And um, we're just going to play some music. And I want to ask something of you just as we close. You may have need of a miracle, however you choose to define that. At this moment, you say, what I'm needing is not something that's everyday garden variety. God help me with this problem that there is an I'm up against the wall kind of need. I want you to hold that thought for a moment. There may be some of you here tonight who have someone in your life, a friend or family member, who's like my friend Denny. They're in a nursing facility. They were brain damaged. They're in an asylum. I don't know. But in this closing moment tonight, you would like to stand in proxy for them. You'd like to stand in their place. You say, my cousin Jack is like Denny. And I don't know that he'll ever be healed in that sense, but why don't we pray for that, but also pray that I would be healed, that, that I wouldn't stay away, that I'd, that I'd move in close, and that I'd, I'd read scripture if I could, or, or sing songs, whatever it is. Both would be miracles. But... It, as this music plays, just in this moment, if you yourself need a miracle of some kind, or if you'd like to stand in proxy for somebody like my friend Denny in their place, I'd like you to just take two minutes, step out from where you are. I'm gonna stand for Denny right here. And I'd like you to step out from where you are and come and stand with me, just right down here. Would you do that? Wherever you are, just come and stand right here. Just come up real close. Yeah, let's 
come stand. We're just going to have a prayer right here. Come on. Come a little closer if you like. That's right. Come on down. I know we don't do this in this way very often, but I think this is a moment. Would you bow your hearts and your heads with me in prayer tonight? Lord God Almighty, you, the God to whom my, my friend Dr. Matthew prayed that night, we believe you, Lord, for miracles right here. We don't know what it means. We, I don't know these situations, but you know them like the back of your hand. For the one here who needs spiritual resurrection. They need sins forgiven. They need to be whole in that way. Thank you for doing that even as we pray. For the one here who's up against the wall with situations they don't can't see their way through, we believe for that right here. We believe for healing. We believe for wholeness. For those of us who hurt because we have a family member or a friend who is in a state like Denny. And sometimes we cry ourselves to sleep or beat our fists into the pillow. I pray that our hearts will be liberated even tonight to draw us back into a place where we, we will go and sit and minister life. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the God who works. We give you praise. Let's just in your own way in this moment, just thank him for that, would you? Some of you might want to do that out loud, some just quietly, but let's just thank him. Take a few moments. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your power, for your presence and who you are here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. There's an old gospel song that goes like this. By and by, when the morning comes, when all the saints of God are gathered home, we'll tell the story how we've overcome. And we'll understand it better. By and by. A lot of answers we don't get here. But I pray for us that we can be answers to other people's prayers, that we can be part of the human component of miracles at one at the same time that we're getting one of our own. I just believe that. One of the things that the Lord gives us is community. And on Wednesday night, it's community with cookies. And there are cookies in the back. Some of you have children. Please get your children and bring them here. Thank you for being here tonight. God bless you. We continue to pray with you in these situations. God bless. Go in his grace.